So we're coming to the end, nearly, of this uh, little epistle of 2 Peter. And as we've been going through this epistle, we've been seeing the main theme that Peter's been wanting to bring up, which is enduring until the end, to give Christians perseverance in their lives. And he's been wanting to bring that theme out because he's been dealing with the issue of suffering that comes from within the church. And we've been seeing over the last three weeks that the main source of that suffering is false teachers. People who are in the church who teach wrong things, teach false things, lead people away from the Lord Jesus. And so back in chapter 1, Peter was encouraging and exhorting these believers to endure until the end by having a fulfilled Christian life, by making sure they were born again, in growing in their relationship with Jesus, and that primarily that happens through the Word, through reading the Scriptures and learning what God has to say. And then we saw last week, as we came into chapter 3, that John was bringing up the similar thing, the importance of the Word and the effects that that should have upon our lives. Now today, Peter's going to change his tack a little bit, and he's going to encourage and exalt these believers in a different way, that they are to live in the present in light of the future. That as we live our lives as Christians, we are to know what's going to happen in the future, and that that is supposed to encourage us to endure until the end, to have perseverance to keep going when we come across false teachers. That's what we're going to see in these three, sorry, four verses from verse 10 to 13. Now, as we pick it up in verse 10, he starts off by saying, but the day of the Lord. Now, that phrase, the day of the Lord, you probably have come across before. It's a phrase that comes up quite a lot in scriptures. It comes up 19 times in the Old Testament. It's mentioned specifically four times in the New Testament. And for us to really get to grips with what Peter's saying in these verses, we have to understand what the day of the Lord is. What does it mean? And I want to go back to the Old Testament and also be in the New Testament to explain this. So let's deal with the Old Testament first. Up on the screen, there should be a couple of sections of Scripture, one from Isaiah and one from Amos, hopefully, which tell us some things about the day of the Lord. So starting in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 12, it says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. And then in Amos chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord! For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Does not the day of the Lord, is it not darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? Now, I think you'll agree with me that when you read these verses, the day of the Lord is a day where the proud are judged, where God brings vengeance, it's a day of doom, and it's a day of gloom. 
And indeed, that's what it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was a specific day or period of time where God intervened into the history of the nation of Israel and he brought his judgment. Why did he have to do that? Well, it's because the nation of Israel didn't get on too well. For generations before God brought the day of the Lord, they'd been sinning, they'd been gaining to idol worship, into oppressing the poor, into sexual immorality, and God in his grace and his mercy sent various prophets to the nation of Israel and said, look, this is where you're going wrong. Turn back to God. Turn back to him so that you can live. But if you don't turn back to him, he's going to bring judgment. And we know from the Old Testament that some people in Israel were faithful to the Lord in those times, but the majority of people said, no, we don't want anything to do with God. We don't want to listen to you, Isaiah. We don't want to listen to you, Jeremiah. We don't want to listen to you, Amos. We don't want to turn back to God. And so the Lord said, okay, if that's what you want, then I'm going to have to bring my judgment. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that when the Lord interacts with humanity, he has to interact with them based upon their morality. And if they're morally wrong, when he interacts with them, he brings judgment. And that's what he did in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel when he sent them off into captivity. That was their day of the Lord. So that's what the Old Testament says. But what about the New Testament? Well, again, there should be some verses on your screens. The first one is from Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 16, it says the following. This is Peter speaking. He says, But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And my men servants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm sorry if I'm sort of getting a bit mixed up with my reading. I think the Lord's trying to speak to me about my handwriting this morning. So sorry about that. I'm just a typical doctor. But anyway, so what Peter's doing in these verses was he was obviously preaching on the day of Pentecost and he was explaining to the people there what was happening. And he was saying, look, what you're seeing is a fulfillment of a prophecy that Joel brought that on the last days or in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And that's one of the great blessings of the new covenant that if someone responds to Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord comes to take residence within them and live with them forever. In the Old Testament, that was only present in prophets, priests, and kings, but now it can be on absolutely anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. But notice it says also, Peter, in these verses, he's saying that there's going to be a day of the Lord in the last days. And that's what we get from these verses, that this day of the Lord, 
that was there in the Old Testament is going to happen again sometime between the first and the second coming of Christ. That's what the last days are. So that's what we learn. So the day of the Lord is not just an Old Testament phenomena, it's a New Testament phenomena as well. And then in Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of this. In verses 29 and 30 of Matthew 24, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, listen, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Does that sound familiar? The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the Son of of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And what I want you to notice about what Jesus is saying here is he is linking the day of the Lord with his second coming. Different Christians debate about when the day of the Lord actually starts. Some people think it's at the start of the Great Tribulation. Some people think it's midway through. Other people think it's when Jesus returns. That doesn't really matter But what we get from Scripture is the absolute fulfillment of the day of the Lord will come when Jesus returns. Now, when that happens, when the day of the Lord comes, the sobering thing is, is that Jesus is going to bring his wrath to earth. Jesus is going to bring his righteous anger and vengeance to the earth on that day. And we see that in verse 10 of our text today. Look at what it says. It says that on the day of the Lord, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Now that is a um, term that is linked to some scripture in Revelation chapter 6. And if you read Revelation chapter 6, you'll see that when Jesus opens the sixth seal, there's a description there of the heavens being rolled up like a scroll. And that term, when he says that they're rolled up like a scroll, is similar to what it says here when it says the heavens will pass away with a great noise. And when the sixth seal is opened, listen, the people on earth at that time will know that the day of Jesus' wrath has come. And they will be so scared of that that it says in Revelation 6 that they will ask the rocks to fall on them. I mean, how sobering is that? That people will be so scared to ask for that to happen to them. That's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to bring his wrath. Why? Why does Jesus bring his wrath? Well, let's think about this. Jesus, the perfect God, has become the perfect man when he came the first time. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross for our sins. He suffered for us. He rose again on the third day. He ascended into heaven. He's given his spirit. And many, many people over the last 2,000 years have gone out into the world and said, turn from your sin, believe in Jesus, be born again, and be a child of God. And I'm thankful that many people have accepted that message. But listen, many people haven't. Many people have rejected the gospel. And not only that, this world is a world that's full of sin, full of unrighteousness, and full of bad things. And we learned last week through John that God is, in a sense, holding off his second coming 
because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants them to repent. But listen, like the Old Testament, there will come a time when Jesus says, enough's enough. I've had enough of people rejecting my gospel. I've had enough of sin. I've had enough of unrighteousness. I am going to bring my wrath to the earth. And that's what happens on the day of the Lord. How does that happen? Well, we see in verses 10 and 12 in our text. I want you to look at those verses. You'll see that when Jesus brings his wrath on the day of the Lord, he brings it with fire. So in the Old Testament, God brought his judgment through water in the flood to wash away the corruption of the earth. But at the second day of the Lord, or the ultimate fulfillment of the day of the Lord, he's going to bring fire. And I want to bring a couple of things out from this. Notice it says there in verse 12 that the elements will melt. It says in verse 10 that the works of the world will be burned up. And that means that literally things are going to heat up so that they dissolve, so that they melt away. You know, when you boil a kettle, you switch the kettle on, the temperature goes up, and water gets dissolved and goes up into the air like steam. And that's what God's going to do when he comes on the day of the Lord. He's going to, in a sense, dissolve away all of the bad things of this world, all of the sin and all of the rejection of God. But notice also it talks about, uh, in verse 11 and 12, he uses the words dissolved, things will be dissolved. And that's a word in the Greek which means to loosen something away from bondage. And this is the second thing I want to say that Jesus is going to do when he brings his wrath. He's going to listen, he's going to loosen the bondage of this creation away from corruption. Hallelujah. What a great day that will be when Jesus comes and actually, in a sense, fulfills creation's desire, as it says in Romans 8, to be given freedom from the corruption of sin and to be in the presence of the glorious redemption of the sons of God forever. Amen. Bring that fast, Lord. This is what he's going to do. This is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day when Jesus will bring his wrath he will do it to get rid of sin, to get rid of unrighteousness, and it is truly a great and awesome day, as it says in Acts chapter 2. And we should think it's a great and awesome day, because on that day, there will be no more corruption in this world. And we'll go into a state of not having corruption anymore. What an amazing thing. We need to not be so unthankful necessarily for the day of the Lord, but be thankful for it, because it's the means by which God is going to use to deal with the horrible things in this world. Now, there are three things that I believe Peter wants to do through these verses in getting these believers to think about the day of the Lord. And he wants to motivate three things in their lives, and he wants to motivate three things in our lives when we think about the day of the Lord. In verse 10... He wants to motivate expectancy. In verses 11 and 12, he wants to motivate holy living. And then in verse 13, he wants to motivate hope as we think about the day of the Lord. And I want to deal with each one of those in turn. So firstly, in verse 10, notice he says, 
But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now this term, thief in the night, specifically related to the day of the Lord, is confirmed by the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, where he says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And then in Revelation 16, verse 5, Jesus himself says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Now, I want to explain what this means. What um, this phrase is trying to get us to think of is what it's like for someone who's burgled at night. You know, you're there asleep, suddenly you hear a noise, and there's a burglar that comes in unexpectedly, without warning necessarily, and comes upon you suddenly. And this is what's going to happen with the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is going to come upon the inhabitants of the earth in an unexpected time. It's going to come when people are not ready for it. It's going to come suddenly, just, just like that. And there's a reality, brothers and sisters, that when we think of this, that the day of the Lord is going to come as a thief in the night, the first thing that we learn about this, knowing that it's related to the second coming of Christ, is it's absolutely, listen, it's absolutely foolish, unbiblical, and I would say stupid, to make predictions about when Jesus is coming back. To make predictions about certain years or certain months or certain days or certain times. I mean, I was on Twitter, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and I saw an advert that said that the end of the world's going to happen on the 11th of September this year. Now, that might be the case. I, I'm, I'm not saying that's not possible, but what I'm saying is, is to spend your whole time focusing on that is stupid because we're not going to know when that's going to happen exactly. Now, I want to be careful in what I say because even though we're not going to know the actual day, we can know the season of when Jesus might be coming back. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that before he comes back, it will be like the days of Noah. And what was happening in the days of Noah where people were living life, they were getting married, they were eating, they were drinking, and they just were absolutely, they just didn't know that the flood was coming. Even though Noah was preaching to them, he was preaching righteous to them, righteousness to them. They did not know. And then it came like a sudden, unexpected judgment. Whoosh, gone. And that's what it's going to be like in this world before Jesus comes back. People are going to be living life normally. They're going to be thinking nothing's wrong. They're going to be getting married. They're going to be eating. They're going to be drinking. And then all of a sudden, the day of the Lord will come upon them as a thief in the night. And I would suggest to you that we're living in a generation where that possibly might be the case. But I'm not making any predictions. But the other thing about this, that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, is to understand what Peter is wanting to encourage in these believers' hearts. Now, I want you to notice that what he's saying in verse 10 is that the day of the Lord is a reality. It's going to happen but you're not going to know the exact time that is going to happen. 
And he wants them to live between those two truths in tension. And the tension that he wants them to live in is to live in expectation of that day at any moment. That the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, could happen at any time. And that's what it should be like for us. We should be living in that expectation of Jesus coming back at any time. I mean, let me ask you a question. Over the last week, have you thought about Jesus coming back a second time? I, I, well, I have because I've been studying this. But, but, but on, a, on a normal week, I probably don't. But then am I really living in expectation of the second coming of Christ? Maybe I'm not. Maybe I need to grow in that. But listen, the reason why he wanted them to live in expectation and for us to live in expectation is, remember, we're dealing with the reality of false teachers. And so I think that many, or I believe that many of these people that Peter was writing to probably would have been affected by false teachers. They may have been hurt by false teachers. They may have been led astray by false teachers. And some of these people may have had real issues of anger, real issues of unforgiveness, resentment, remorse towards these false teachers. And Peter's saying to them, look, those issues are going to be dealt with on the day of the Lord. So let go of your anger. Let go of your unforgiveness, your resentment, and your remorse. He's wanting them to live out the reality of what it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So Peter's saying to these guys, Look, Jesus is coming back, and when he comes back, he is going to bring his vengeance. He is going to bring justice for all of the wrong things that have been done against you as a believer. So let it go. Let Jesus deal with it. He is the only perfect judge. He's the only one that can bring vengeance in a perfect way. We cannot do that. So therefore, it's pointless for us to be holding on to unforgiveness vengeance towards people that have hurt us. And I believe the Lord wants to say to us this morning, maybe there's people in here who are holding on to things, holding on to how people have hurt them, how they've been hurt through someone else's words or actions, and Jesus is saying to you this morning, let go of that thing. Let him, him deal with it when he comes back a second time. He wants to deal with that in your heart this morning. And if you're in that place, if you feel your heart being tugged as I'm saying this, don't leave this place this morning without having that dealt with because God wants to deal with it today. So moving on into verses 11 and 12. Peter brings up the second thing that he wants to motivate in these people as they think about the day of the Lord. And he wants to motivate in these people holy living. Notice in verse 11, he asks a rhetorical question, which is a question where the person who's been asked it knows the answer. He says, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? 
And the obvious answer to that is, well, yes, of course I want to be a person of holy conduct and godliness, knowing that Jesus is going to come back and deal with all ungodliness and all unholiness. And I think he's doing this to grab our attention. He's almost making it so obviously simple for us that he wants us to focus on this verse or these couple of verses. I think this, in these two verses is the main point that Peter wants to make in this little section. And he then goes on in verse 12, and he says, If we live in holy conduct and godliness, there are two results. We look for, which means we have a more of a desire, and we hasten the coming day of God, which is a reference to the second coming of Christ. And that word hastening there literally means to speed up the second coming of Christ. And so there's some incredible things in these verses, and we do need to unpack them. So let's do that in verse 11 first. We need to ask the question, what does it mean for us as believers to live a life of holy conduct and godliness? Put it another way, what does it mean to live a life that reflects the kingdom of God? What does it mean to live a life that reflects the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus spoke a lot about this in the Gospels. And I just want to go to Mark 12. That should be up on the screen, verses 28 to 31. And this is one of the scribes speaking to Jesus. He says, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, answered, or asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And then the scribe agrees with Jesus. And then in verse 34, it says, Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus would say in the Gospel of John, in John 14, that if we love him, we are to follow his commands. Jesus said in John chapter 6 that to do the work of God is to believe in him whom has been sent by the Father. And so when you look at the New Testament Scriptures, brothers and sisters, you see that to live a life that reflects Jesus is to live a life of love, and to live a life of faithful obedience to him. Now, when I think about that, that makes me feel nervous. Because I know full well that in myself, I cannot produce that kind of life. I know that if I rely upon my own strength, I don't love people, and I don't follow Jesus in faithful obedience. But then I go to the book of Galatians in Galatians 5, and I read that love and faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit that has to produce these qualities in our life. Well, how does that work? How do we allow the Spirit to do that? Well, this is where we need to deal with some basic positional theology. So, follow me if you, if you can. For human beings, brothers and sisters, there's only two options. You can either be in Adam or you can be in Christ. And every human being that's been born other than Jesus was born into Adam, which means they were born with original sin. They were born with the law of sin in their hearts, which means they're always wanting to sin. 
And human beings in that state are dead in their sins and transgressions and they cannot have a relationship with God. It's a simple fact. And God has to intervene into that situation and when he does and people respond to the gospel, guess what happens? The Spirit of God comes to dwell within you and you are no longer in Adam but you are in Christ. Praise God. You are no longer in the flesh but you are in the Spirit. You have the law of the Spirit come to dwell within your heart and you begin to want to do the right thing. You begin to want to follow God and do His will and live a life of praise and thankfulness for what He's done for you. But if anyone's been a Christian for a minute will know that even though that's the case, we still have the sinful nature with us. And so what starts when you become a believer is the battle between the spirit and the flesh, the law of the spirit and the law of sin. And they're battling with each other all the time, wanting to have dominance. And so what can happen is that there can be a reality that as believers, we can be in the spirit, we can be saved, we can be born again, but we can be walking in the flesh. I mean, has anyone had that experience where you just have one of those days where you know you're God's, but you're just being tempted, you're sinning, you're doing the wrong thing all the day. I mean, what, and you just think, what's going on, Lord? That's an example of you being in the Spirit, but walking in the flesh. And when that happens, when we walk that way, when we allow that to happen in our lives, we quench the Spirit. And the circumstances are not there for the Spirit to work in our lives, maybe as much as we'd like, and to grow us as much as we'd like. So the answer, brothers and sisters, is in Galatians 5.25, that if we are in the Spirit, if we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit as well. We, we need to both be in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit on a daily basis. And I want to give you three practical ways to do that on a daily basis. These are the things that have helped me in my walk with the Lord. And I must say that these things are things you need to do every day. Because every day we have to, in a sense, set our hearts to both be in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit. So the three things are this. What you need to do, I would suggest on a daily basis, is you need to gospel yourself. And what I mean by that is you need to remember on a daily basis who you are in Christ. You need to remember that you have been saved from every sin. You've been forgiven from every sin. You've been redeemed from every sin. You've been born again in the Spirit. And because of that, listen, in a positional sense, you are innocent and righteous before God. And that never changes. You need to remember that. You also need to remember on a daily basis that your old man or woman who sins all the time was crucified in Christ. And when Jesus rose, you were made alive with him, you were risen with him, and you're now seated with him in the heavenly realms. And because of that, you can say no to sin. You have the power within you to not live a sinful life. Hallelujah. And you need to remember that every day. And I say that because those two truths, if the devil can get you away from believing those two truths, you will live a Christian life of defeat. You will not live a Christian life of victory. So you need to remember those two facts. The second major thing is having remembered those truths, you need to submit 
and surrender yourself to Jesus every single day. Not just once in your life, every single day. As it says in Romans 12, you need to be that living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to the Lord. As it says in Romans 6, you need to submit your members or all of your life to God to be used as an instrument of righteousness instead of unrighteousness. And when we do that, as it says in Romans 6, we'll be sanctified onto experiencing the eternal life more and more. What a wonderful thing. And you simply do it by submitting and surrendering yourself to Jesus. And then the third thing is that we must grow in faith. We must ask God to help us to grow in faith every day so that we trust that we're saved individuals. We trust that the Spirit is in us, that He's greater than the world, He's greater than sin, He's greater than the devil, and He is going to lead us to both change us and to extend the kingdom of God. And I believe that if you do those three things on a daily basis, in prayer, in the Word of God, then you will be a Christian that is not just in the Spirit, but walking in the Spirit as well. And if we did that collectively as a church, brothers and sisters, man, the fruit that we would see would be amazing. We would see many people get saved. We would see the church grow in holiness and purity and be a voice in the darkness that's presiding over this land. And this is what will bring forth that holy conduct and that godliness. And then in verse 12, it says, if we're living that way, we will be looking and hastening the coming day of God. And I mentioned earlier that that means that if we live that life, both in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, we will speed up the second coming of Christ. I mean, does that not excite you? That we can speed up the second coming of Christ? When the king of the universe will come to this world, establish his kingdom, and then there will be just righteousness forever? That's what I want. I want to be in that place now. And the way this happens is if we are living in the Spirit and walking in the Spirit, listen, the Spirit is more likely to use us to be part of how He is drawing people to Christ. He's more likely to use us to sow those seeds, to water those seeds, to reap those seeds, and to see people come to Jesus. And as we heard last week from John, the gospel is free for anyone to respond to. But God knows who will be saved. And guess what? There is a number in heaven. And every time someone gets saved, that number comes down. And it will eventually get to zero. And when it gets to zero, when everyone in a sense is saved that God knew would be saved, Jesus will come back. And so if we are involved in seeing people get saved, that number's coming down quickly. And so we are, in a sense, in a very real way, speeding up the second coming of Christ. Now, there's something I, I do feel the Lord wants to warn us about, though, in these verses. And I do feel the Lord has something very specific for us, for us today as a church. And that is that when, if you look at the Scriptures, I think you have to be, if you're being really honest and faithful to the Scriptures, you'll see that as, the, as we get closer to the second coming of Christ, the world is going to get worse, it's going to get more sinful, 
and morally it's going to become more dark. And there's a reality we've seen in chapter 2. Do you remember Lot? Where it said that Lot, his righteous soul, was tormented by the things that he saw around them, or, or around him. That means that we can be affected by this moral decline in our society. We can be tormented by it. Jesus himself said in Matthew 24 that as we get, as we get closer to his second coming, the love of many will grow cold. The point that the Lord wants to make to us is that we need to be aware that as we get closer to the second coming of Christ, the temptation to not live this holy life is going to get worse. And the temptation, listen, to not love people is going to get worse as well. And the Lord wants to say something specific to us this morning about this that relates to this fellowship. One of the great things about Servants Church is how diverse we are. We all come from different backgrounds. There's different nationalities in here. There's different cultures. And there are different, in a sense, streams of Christianity in this church. Some of us are more Reformed than others. Some of us are more Pentecostal. Some of us emphasize certain things about the Spirit that other people don't. And that's a good thing in many ways because we have to wrestle through those things together. But I do feel the Lord wants to warn us about something this morning. And that is that as we get closer to His second coming, we need to be aware that when we're in church, when we're around people, that have different opinions to us, the temptation is going to be to not love that brother or sister. I mean, let's be honest. I'm sure some of you have gone home from Servants Church on Sunday sometimes and thought, man, that brother's weird. Why does he believe that? Why does he not believe what I believe? We, we all have that, don't we, if we're being honest. We all have those feelings sometimes. And when you have that feeling... This is what the Lord wants to say to us. We have to be careful about how we deal with that feeling towards one another. Because God wants us to grow together. He wants us to love each other. The grounds for us loving each other is not whether we agree on everything, but it's whether we are born again in the Spirit. As it says in Ephesians 4, the unity of the Spirit has been given to us already. We're called not to make it, but to maintain it in the bond of peace. And listen, when we, when we allow those feelings of almost thinking a brother is weird or kind of, why does he believe that? You need to guard your heart in those situations. Because you can become, in a sense, angry, unforgiving. You can become hard to that brother. And that is going to grieve the spirit. That is going to quench the spirit and we are not going to be used the way God wants to use us. Jesus wants to use this fellowship to see people get saved and to grow the church in holiness and purity. And we must guard that reality. That has been the case for the last 2,000 years, and we have a responsibility to guard that in our hearts. Really, what the heart of God is for us is found as a fellowship in Romans 15, verses 5 to 7. I'm just going to read that. 
It says, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded towards one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That is what God's heart is for us. He wants us to be like-minded so that we are both worshipping God and walking in the will of God together for His glory and for His fruitfulness. And I do feel that's something very specific that the Lord wanted to speak to us today. So going into our last verse, in verse 13, we're going to see the last thing that Peter wanted to motivate in these believers. And that was he wanted the day of the Lord to motivate hope in them. He says, Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, as a GP, when I'm working, I see a lot of emotions. I see people come in and they're really distressed, really upset, really angry, they're really hurt. I see other emotions of people being elated by good news, having a treatment that's been successful. But by far the most common thing I see in my patients is hopelessness. They have no hope. They come in and they have a diagnosis of cancer or a terminal illness, or one of their children's very unwell, or a relative's died, and they have no hope. And it's not just in the GP surgery that we see this. We see it on the TV all the time when we watch the news. I'm sure many of you have got experiences of seeing people around you that have no hope. And they have no hope, listen, because sin does not provide hope. The wages of sin is death. And there is no hope in death when you're in sin. There's no hope in it. God sees death as an enemy. He says that the last enemy that will be defeated is death. This world is hopeless because it's a fallen world. It's sinful. But the good news is, is that when we become followers of Christ, we go from being hopeless to being hopeful. We go from being in the kingdom of darkness or Satan to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that gives us great hope. Why? Well, it says here in verse 13, it's according to his promise. Well, what promise is that? What is the overriding promise of the Bible? Well, what it is, is that God is going to eradicate sin through Jesus. It's a promise that's been there since the Garden of Eden. Do you remember when God said that he was going to crush the head of Satan? The originator of sin? It's a promise that's exemplified in the history of the nation of Israel as they were redeemed out of Egypt and came into relationship with God. And of course, it's a promise that has been fulfilled in Christ. And now Jesus, through his Spirit, is setting people free from the penalty of sin by getting saved, setting people free from the power of sin by being sanctified to be more like Jesus, and setting people free ultimately in the future from the presence of sin by being given new bodies that have no sin within them. And when we have that glorified body, brothers and sisters, we will be with Jesus forever in his glory. We will be with him as he makes the new heavens 
and the new earth in which righteousness, listen, dwells. That word dwell means forever. It's never going to go away. The code of this world right now is unrighteousness. The code of the new world will be righteousness forever and ever and ever and ever. And I know we find it difficult to contemplate that, but that is what is going to happen. And this, brothers and sisters, is biblical hope. God has given us his promise, and because we know that God cannot lie, we believe in him, even though we can't see it, we're waiting for it to happen. And the good news, I mean, biblical hope gets even better because unlike unbelievers who, when they have difficulties, they become less hopeful, when we have difficulties, the Bible says that we will become more hopeful. Because in Romans 5, what does it say? We exult in our trials because trials produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces what? Hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why do trials produce hope in Christians? Well, because when you go through trials, you see the effect of sin upon this world in ways that you can't see when you're not going through trials. And you're just like, man, I want that new world now. I want that world of righteousness to come now because I want to be free from sin forever. This is biblical hope. Biblical hope has no defeat in it. There's only victory. Can I get an amen for that? Biblical hope has no defeat. It has just victory. This is what God is calling us to. And the thing is, is that he brings forth that hope to its fullness by the day of the Lord. Because when Jesus comes back, the day of the Lord will be in its fullness, and he's going to rid us from unrighteousness forever. And in this reality, we see that God is a God of restoration. God is always a God of restoration. Even when he destroys things, God's heart is always to restore things. And he's going to do that through the day of the Lord. This is a reality that has been brought home to me since we've had our boys. Because my boys went through some difficult things in the first few years of their life. And God could have left them in that place. And their lives surely would have been destroyed. But he didn't leave them in that place. He brought them to me and Emma, and he's restoring them. Because God is a God of restoration. That is what he always does. That's his heart. It's been his heart from the beginning. Do you remember it says in Romans 8 that God allowed sin to come into this world in hope that one day he'd get rid of it forever and ever and ever. And so God, the God of hope, wants us to abound in hope by the Spirit of God so that we look different to unbelievers. So the unbelievers come up to us and say, why are you so hopeful in this terrible situation? And you can say, well, because I know this world's going to end one day. And I know that righteousness is going to reign. 
And I know that the answer is Jesus, and he wants you to know that as well. So let's talk about that. That's what God wants to use us for. He wants to use us to show this biblical hope as a way of seeing people come back to Christ. So we've seen today, brothers and sisters, that the day of the Lord, in many Christian circles, is seen as being a day of darkness and doom and gloom and judgment, which is very true. But I believe that God, in these three verses, is presenting to us an alternate way of seeing the day of the Lord. That the day of the Lord should, bring, should motivate in us expectancy, holiness, and hope. Good things. So just remember that when you see the day of the Lord in the Scriptures. Remember that that day is going to be, yes, a day of judgment, but it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a day when unrighteousness goes and righteousness remains. Amen?